Why, hello, Thrivers. What is a Thriver, you ask? If you're a Thriver, it means you're a fan of this show. That's right. While you're all Thrivers in my heart, there's a more official way to become one, if you catch my drift. Go to www.patreon.com slash MrThrive to become a patron to this exciting opportunity for exclusive content, live updates, experimental media, insights, and more, all to keep you more in the action. Become a Thriver today at patreon.com slash MRThrive. Enjoy the show. You have stumbled upon Stars of Tomorrow, where this day only, I, Izzy Salant, interview the host, Mr. Thrive himself, Charlie Volk, who is yet to be discovered. This up-and-coming podcast talks with the up-and-coming. It's a weird, weird feeling. Right? Being on this side of the microphone. Welcome to your own podcast. Wow. It's a. It's not a bad studio. No, it's pretty... Whose bedroom is this? It looks really good. I, I think it's yours. Is there a frat guy in this house? Because there's like paddles? <laughs> Whoa. If you guys didn't know, uh, Chaz was an AE pie and <laughs> yes. talks about it a lot. I, I talk every now when it's brought up because the paddles are, are there. They're pretty dominant. You know, <laughs> they can be emasculating depending on who's looking at it, I realize. And it's not necessarily my goal, but it is a good memory for me, you know? Well, as I was saying, welcome to your own <laughs> podcast. Like, you're right. It is really weird. And... That's what we're going to talk about, the fact that this is weird. How does it feel to host my show? It feels, it's pretty fun, actually. Yeah. I'm enjoying it. Good. Yeah, it's weird to be, not weird to be back on the podcast, but it's weird to be on this side of it, but it's cool to be back on the podcast. Right. E- episode nine, check it out. Yeah. <laughs> Good plug in there. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Um, but let's let's just get right into it. Like, you know, you're on your own podcast. Why don't you like talk about like how this got started to begin with? Absolutely. Um, I was working at a company that I will not mention its name. It was a really, really bad company. I was working there about half a year ago, six or seven months ago. And um, around the end of my time working there, I felt like I wasn't creating anything. I was still doing audio technician work. I you know, was doing laborious work for a company that had me wear many hats, tr- basically treated me as an in-house technician. Um, when I, I really wanted to be an audio technician and all that was happening for minimum wage, which is like mind boggling when you think about it, an audio tech technician with a bachelor's degree. And I was miking up uh, AAA talent. You know, I, 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 I mic'd up, um, John Lovitz and I mic'd up Jack Kay from the eighties. I mic'd up Howie Mandel, which, which was cool. But like, you know, I was doing all this for minimum wage and Towards the end of my time working there, uh, I began to have this idea of the fact that I had worked with so many phenomenal people up until that point that I needed to start getting their voices out there. So I created this podcast, Mr. Thrive Stars of Tomorrow. Uh, Stars of Tomorrow is just this overall, I think alone it's a message that we're all going places. We're just not there yet, you know? Um, maybe it's one blink away and we're going to have made our big break. Right. And that's something that's really been kind of a magical idea to me is not necessarily the night before you get the, the call, but maybe the night before where there's a lot of tension building and you just kind of have this, this moment to yourself of just wondering if it's going to happen. And I think we've all felt that very, uh, vulnerable 
small feeling, that whisper that gets to you and creeps up on you in the middle of the night of, will I make it? What am I doing with my life? Um, and these are things that I've, 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 you know, heard whisper in my head uh, over and over and over. Uh, and that's just part of what it means to be an artist out here in Los Angeles, artists in general. You know, will I be able to make it? Well, am I worthy? And um, that's what this podcast is for. Yeah, the really cool thing is like you have artists like in a lot of different mediums. You know, you had you had screenwriters on, but you also have you know musicians on, and you have directors, and you have producers, and you have like everybody encompassed into one podcast rather than just being like, nope, only going to focus on screenwriters or nope, only going to focus on directors. And I think that's really cool. Um, and the other thing that's really cool with that is like you have a lot of film experience yourself. Uh, do wearing multiple hats. You mentioned you did audio tech, but like you know you went to film school. You had a lot of other things. Uh, why don't you talk about like how you got started in film to begin with, and like what also inspired you to like really get into that industry? Absolutely. Uh, it's funny enough. I I think I was introduced to film in a very unorthodox way. Uh, Nick Benjamin, who I've name dropped a few times in this podcast. Uh, what happened was uh, we had a mutual friend who introduced us. And it was in middle school, and he was one year older than me. And what happened was, uh, <laughs> so we were playing soccer in the tennis courts, which is actually the worst place to play soccer, because I actually tripped over the net one time in the middle trying to play, but we didn't have a better soccer field to play in, apparently. And uh, there was also this one kid named Jake Ledbetter, uh, who had tall, lanky legs. And what happened was, uh, behind our school, there was a wheat field, like a, like a horse crossing path where just the horses would go by because people in our town had some horses. And one, one, one day after I met Nick, uh, we're walking back and I guess Jake Ledbetter had actually collected a bunch of wheat and hay from the other side of the fence into a big trough of, 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 of hay, just a, like a big bundle <laughs> of hay in his hands. I'm like, we're all looking at him wondering what he's doing. Where, where, I, where I ended the game was at a distance from where Nick... And where Kayla and where Jake had ended the game. And so they were over there. And from the, from a distance, I saw uh, Jake kind of like creep up and like sit, like ask Nick something. And I swear to God, I thought I saw Nick going, like nodding his head going, yeah, do it. So next thing I know, Jake Ledbetter comes up to me and he chucks that whole thing of wheat and hay into my face. And I remember it, it hit me like a brick. When something with, with, with wheat... When it hits you, when it's when it's bundled up like that, it really does feel like a brick when it's chucked in your face. So I'm actually genuinely pissed. I just got a brick thrown in my face. So I chased this guy across the field, but because of his tall grasshopper legs, I couldn't <laughs> reach him. And I was out of breath. And Nick came running after me. He said, dude, are you okay? And I shoved him against the wall. And I said, fuck you. And I walked away, right? So that happened. And then also, anytime I ever got into a fight, I knew that in my middle school because I understood the system a little bit. If you always, if you reported yourself, uh, you got in less trouble. So I always reported myself anytime I got into a fight. And um, <laughs> next thing I know, I told him myself. And next thing I know, the principal's hosting a really awkward intervention in the room with Nick and I. And um, next thing I know, uh, you know, he said, just just be friends and don't be don't be hurting each other and just get out of my office now. I got real work to do now. So Nick and I went off. And um, funny enough, we started having sleepovers at each other's houses every other weekend because he lived right across, the, like right in the, like like two minutes away from me, two minutes driving away, which I was like, what? That's crazy. 
Um, you should throw hay at me more often. Right. You should throw hay at me more often. So, and it turns out he never told that kid to throw the wheat in my face. Um, long story short, I wanted to be an architect when I met him. And uh, his mom actually happened to be an architect. And despite the blueprints I got to look over her shoulder for, um, I decided through Nick's, because of Nick's passions, uh, that I wanted to be a filmmaker. Because I loved the way he talked about film, all the knowledge that Nick had about uh, film. His charisma uh, was inspiring. And he was my motivation for getting into film. When I went to film school at San Francisco State, um, I realized while I was there that no one is ever going to hire me to be a director. And no one is ever going to hire me to be a screenwriter. So I need a technical skill. And that's why I started to explore and take a wide approach to my film studies at San Francisco State. It didn't require me to have an emphasis. That was one really great thing about San Francisco State. It allowed me to explore all the way into the depths of animation a little bit. I explored a little bit of camera work, but everything about camera goes over my head. I, need, I just need to practice camera. Camera is a really cool uh, uh, craft. I just don't know it well enough. And sound clicked with me. Audio clicked with me right that, like that for some reason. Even though I'm a visual learner, sound just made a lot of sense to me. So I started to study sound, and I, I learned a lot about post-production, but mainly with recording sound, I became really, really good at it. And I didn't know it at the time, but that became the groundwork for what would turn out to be this podcast. Right. Which is just so, I, I think about those kind of like steps all the time. Like, what if I had not done this? How would that have affected today? And I play back, I kind of kaleidoscope back a little bit until I get there. And it's like really crazy to see uh, how things have kind of amounted to this point. Right. Do you have, do you have those moments? Yeah. All the time. Just you, you think of this one instance that happens that seems completely, uh, completely irrelevant to what's going on. And then later on in life, you realize that if that didn't happen, then this wouldn't exist. Like you were saying. Yeah. Um, biggest example I can come up with is that, uh, one of my friends in high school and I like went out for baseball and like that's how we became friends and then five years later he drove me to a party where I met the person I ended up dating at the time okay and like that I wouldn't have been as close with him or like probably felt that way about it if like I didn't try out for baseball five years right in advance and a related note to that I, I play this back with um, the organization that I met you at. Right, Aish. Um, Aish Lit. For the, it's a Jewish organization in Beverly Hills that I, I go to every now and then. And I, I think about, you know, had I not been depressed in 2017, I would have not gone to Aish Lit. And had I not gone to Aish Lit, had I never met Izzy Slant, and had I never met Izzy Slant, I wouldn't have met my girlfriend, <laughs> Shelly Davis. Who's also my roommate. Who's also your roommate. <laughs> and it's just like those, those little moments like that. I was like, wow, like I kaleidoscope it back and... Everything amounts to something and everything has a purpose and it's all going to work out. It's all going to be okay. Like I have those moments when I like, think about that, you know? Which is like a great mentality to have. Uh, but if you, if you don't mind, you just mentioned like two really like interesting aspects of your life. One is Shelly, which I definitely want to talk more about. Yeah. And the other is like back in 2017, you said you were depressed and everything. And since we're talking about, you know, like going back and like thinking of those things, would you mind like elaborating on that? Because I know that that like is kind of related to like why you do a lot of things today and like who you are as a person. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, 2017 was a monumental year for me. Uh, and my parents could attest to this. My depression was at the lowest of low at the time. 
Um, some things that contributed to it was the fact that I had came back from Europe, which were the best two months of my life. I had traveled with uh, Nick, uh, Josh, and uh, Dylan, uh, some of my best friends. And, um, you know, we, we had traveled here for two months, best two months of my life. When we got back, that was when reality hit. I was like, oh, I need to get a job. And remember that technical skill that I learned in college, audio? Well, as it turns out, audio technicians at the very, very beginning have it, I think I think it's, it's a hard transition because people don't want to hire you unless you own your own gear, even though renting gear is very valid. And some people make a career out of it. They just have to build a reputation off of that they need their gear rented. They need to make good connections through that. But making those connections as a sound mixer is, as a sound mixer is difficult. Um, and then also getting the gear, which is expensive. Right. Um, so there's that aspect, but also the fact that, you know, I didn't have any connections and I was trying to pick up as much PA work as possible. And I'd maybe get uh, a PA job from the limited connections I had uh, once every couple of months. And that silence of waiting, it got very loud. And it got to my head and I would be cooped up in a house. And also on top of that, some of my relationships with friends became toxic, which didn't help. And these were all just setting, it was just setting the tone for what would end up being this uh, a spiral downhill for me. Um, an entire, like a, a good majority of that year was spent uh, not facing truths to these toxic environments that I was in. And, you know, while I do love my parents, it was hard to live with them at times because, you know, that's what parents do. They get on your nerves. And if you don't have space, then you can't breathe. And I didn't feel like I could breathe often. I didn't feel like home was home. And uh, that was hard. That was really, really hard. So 2017, the big... The big game changer for me was actually this, this one week where my parents were actually celebrating their anniversary and they decided to go to Alaska in which I had the house to myself for an entire week. And I thought I experienced silence before, but that was real silence because now they were gone. I only had the dog to, to take care of and then myself and I was living in this home and there were some days I wasted away playing video games, but I, I had a few epiphanies, which was important. These epiphanies were, were crucial. And that was one, uh, I need a therapist. Because the week before, I had snapped at my dad for taking me to a Dodger game. Which is like the most spoiled white first person world issue I've ever said in my life. But it was like, I snapped at my dad at a Dodger game, really just for being there. Because I couldn't stand being in a public setting. Like that's how bad my depression was. So I need a therapist. Because I have some issues to work out. And the second thing is that, I need to start making opportunities for myself because these opportunities are not coming in through the door. So I started seeing the therapist and there were some books I read that the therapist recommended. And my therapist, uh, Lexi Heinzer from a place to turn, uh, did a really great justice for me, uh, and really, uh, you know, exposed some depths to me. One thing that she really helped me with was with one of the major toxic relationships that I had with a friend, uh, she gave me the strength and the courage to be able to rip that off like a Band-Aid. And sometimes when the tumor is malignant, you have to remove it. And I had to remove it because it really was taking a toll on my life. And it made me so much more happier. I don't think, by the way, 
that I handled that situation perfectly. I don't think that I broke that friendship off well. And I think looking back at it, that there were better ways I could have gone about it. But um, that was still important for me. And it still really, I look back at it as a positive because in a sense, it freed me. And then on top of that, um, I started to learn about uh, business a little bit. And a little side note, one thing I wish film schools would do, at any art school for that matter, is require their students to have a minor in business. Um, if I were the founder of a school, <laughs> if I were the founder of an art school, I would say it's a requirement for everyone to take a minor in business. And why is that? And the answer is because business is an ever-encompassing, it is a ubiquitous skill that you take everywhere, everywhere with you. The importance of knowing how to market yourself, the importance of knowing how to bring yourself out there as an entrepreneur to, to further promote your art so that way you could potentially make a living off of it is the most essential thing for the human experience, I think. Business has been a part of being human since, I will say, since the first caveman, when, when, when simple trading began, you know? Um, it's also this idea of, you know, like, like creating things. Like if you're creating a business from the ground up or something, I mean, you created this podcast, artists create, and they, they go hand in hand, just one's the financial aspect of it to be able to support yourself creating. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I started reading Robert Kiyosaki, who I absolutely adore. And I also started reading, um, Steve, Co uh, still, well, that's not business, but Steve Covey was a good self-help, self-help self book about the seven habits of highly effective people. Um, and he also has a book called The Eighth Habit, and that's an entire book about an eighth concept, which I'd like to read at some point. Um, a little bit hard to read, but while it's dense, it's rich with wisdom. And, um, you know, these seven habits of highly effective people, uh, Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad, also business in the 21st century, uh, also, you know, reading a book like this business and film to understand like the actual network and how uh, films are actually funded the mystery of it, solving it and re reading it. I remember putting that book down and having a headache <laughs> because I had retained so much information in just an hour, you know? And, and that was a great book. I, I'm still to this day upset, like a little bit obsessed with reading business books, more than fiction books. I'd rather read one of those because it's a way for me to further uh, 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 exercise a skill or a concept because I'm always a little bit more inspired by how I can further continue my success as a businessman and as a filmmaker. No, that, that's also like awesome. And that's like admirable that you want to do that. Um, and, you know, going back to what we were talking about, like before business in general, like you were talking about the fact that you were having epiphanies and like, this is, that was one of the things that you came with. Uh, do you want to continue with like, you know, what, what else you like discovered during that week and like how that kind of led to the trajectory of what's going on right now? Yeah, yeah. I will say that that was um, one of the most interesting weeks because uh, it was uh, silence is silence is essential. And I, for someone as impatient as me, I don't, I didn't look at that as a valid thing. I I, I saw silence as a bad thing, but um, I think something that happened was something that actually I've began to practice a lot more recently and that's because of my recent episode with Mick Primer on this podcast he described something called surrendering and when he described it I, I kind of wish I had the chance to elaborate with that on that with him a little bit more 
to expand on that idea. What does it mean to surrender? That week, I think I surrendered without actually knowing what he meant or knowing what surrendering was for that matter. That was pivotal because I, it was a moment of accepting. I accepted the fact that I was fucked up. <laughs> I accepted the fact that my mind wasn't in the right place. I accepted the fact that my life isn't going to get better and that no one's going to call me despite the 100, 200, 300 resumes I had sent out. Because the resumes I was sending probably could have used some professional polishing, looking back at it now. But the other aspect of it is that I just simply, uh, I didn't have a sense of professionalism. And, and surrendering like that was important. It really was. Having a moment to myself to, to breathe and to realize that was essential. And that's, you know, I, I consider myself pretty close with my parents. I love my parents, uh, Lori and Joel Volk. Uh, they've actually helped me a lot uh, throughout this year. This is my first year living alone. And I really do think, I really do believe, I couldn't live alone today if I didn't have that one week to, to myself uh, to find meaning in it and to to expand on that. I remember when they came home and I picked them up from the airport, we first stopped at Tito's Tacos, which is awesome. Go to Tito's Tacos if you get the chance. Assembly line style making of the taco. You watch the entire process and the, the tacos are amazing. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. Uh, not sponsored. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, after that, I remember telling them, so guys, this week was really great. I need a therapist. And they accepted that because they really are good parents. And they helped me and they gave me the resources I need, needed to grow. And that was really, really important for me. And I mean, I... I didn't know you at the time, but like I know you now and like I can safely say as someone who is very good friends with Chaz and as somebody who has been touched by his life, Chaz is a fantastic human being and I don't, I'm not just going to like gush over him because this is his podcast, but it's, it's a genuine thing. He's a fantastic friend, a fantastic boyfriend to Shelly and just a fantastic all around person. Izzy, that really means a lot. Thank you so much. Well, I, I want to say that also because of just, I mean, this podcast alone is just this incredible feat. One, because you did this and you wanted to do this. But two, it's because you're giving people who are not yet discovered or people who are just on the verge or even people who haven't really fully come into themselves yet. But you know, you see something in them that they're going to make it one day. And you're giving them a platform, a voice, and you're letting them speak and you're letting them tell their stories. And I'm really proud that I'm now able to help you tell yours. Thank you. That really does mean a lot. When I, when I was conceptualizing the idea of the podcast, my first thought was, why aren't more podcasts doing this? There are a lot of podcasts out there with people who want to grow and, and develop who, you know, they're, they're not famous. They're not yet discovered as my intro to the podcast coins, but, uh, you know, but they but they will spend time, for example, uh, doing something that, that others have done, which is review a movie that has come out or talk about recent trends in pop culture. These are all great things. And if you're able to find a way to to make money off of it and to make a business or just to simply find happiness out of it, then that is success right there. And you should be proud of yourself. But if you are having hesitations about it and you're having struggle continuing it, and you're not able to find a structure for producing it, then I think those are sure signs that either A, you're not prepared for it, or B, you should stop and reassess your strategy. And that's okay. 
that's okay. I think, you know, one thing I really want to learn in 2020, um, I guess you can call this a resolution of mine. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everybody. Is to love to fail. And it's loving, like, like one thing that Robert Kiyosaki preaches is that failure is a really, really important thing. Um, and, and, and what, like one fault of the current education system is that failing is, a, it is taught to be a, a terrible thing. It's conditioned into us to make us feel horrible. I want to fight that. And maybe that'll require me to get a, a therapist, maybe approach the same therapist I had last time, or maybe that'll just require me to live life a little and, and learn how to take punches. Uh, probably a combination of both, to be honest. But I want to learn how to love to fail, uh, which is a beautiful idea because failure, while it has that negative connotation, has such an essential role in teaching us. Think about how we got here today um, from a anthropo anthrop uh, just like a macro socioeconomic approach to it. You know, you want to look at the industrial age, for example, you want to look at the the uh, in light the age of enlightenment. These were all steps in human evolution in the mind that wouldn't have been possible if we didn't fail. Right. Um, so I need to learn how to love to fail. That's something that I need to learn how to do. And, and the, the really cool thing is like, you're, you're at a point in your life where like you have the opportunity to, to do that, right? Like you are still discovering who you are. I am too. Um, but like, you know, you write a screenplay and it's not up to par, you know what to do next time you, you know, try an endeavor and it doesn't fully work out. You know, you have the support and you know that you have the resolve as you, as a person to like continue going through. So I, I know that's your resolution and I, I commend you on it so much, but just know that like, if something were to happen, like very soon, I know you as a person do have the resolve to keep going. Yeah. Which well, is, you. which is admirable as well. I, I I only have the ability to keep going at this point. If I were to turn back now, I would be back in the dumps in 2017. And that really was the worst time in my life. And I will do anything to fight out of those, trench, those trenches, you know. Um, so come what may, you know. It's, it's, it's a really great um, struggle. It really is. And, you know, I've spent part of the time right now on the podcast like gushing over you and like you know talking how great a friend you <laughs> which are which is a strange feeling but i it's, love it <laughs> well you're also you're also in the interview scene yeah. it's like it's now it's my turn to like say all the awesome things about you that you've said about other people oh shucks but thank you the other thing about that is you know coming from me that means something and coming from you it means something else but we're talking about you know the, the your past and we're talking about you know what you're doing now but who is Chaz? Um, if you had to like describe yourself and if you had to like talk about like we talked about like where you were and we talked about like how you learned film but like talk about like your identity sure um i i will say that i i in summary if i were to put it in a few words i'm just a passionate uh jewish artist out there um but you know if you really want to know i'm a a nice hairy jewish boy who <laughs> Uh, I think I think in one aspect, if you want to look at the, the the three heads in time, you know the the head that looks towards the past, the head that is in the present, the head that looks towards the future. Um, 
I've learned to balance that really well. Um, I think the, the, the best focus for that is to focus so much on the present that you're able to do things. But motivate that doing by the head that looks forward into the future. And use the lessons and knowledge gained from the past to affect today. I say that because I think something that's really, really essential is learning to find meaning in everything. Um, and I guess that, that comes from the head that is in the present and the past, the, the heads, so to speak. But um, I strongly believe that if you are imaginative enough, you can find meaning in everything. It could be something as simple as, you know, leaves blowing by on the street. You know, what, what, what meaning could that possibly have in my life? And maybe that sounds a little bit voodoo. Maybe that sounds a little bit um, wishy-washy. But it's helped me a lot in the past couple of years. I've used it in the past every now and then. And that does attribute, by the way, to my ability to, to write screenplays. It attributes to, with my ability to tell stories, which is something I didn't realize I was passionate about until I met Nick. You know, which is so cool to me. But when you're able to find meaning in the little things like that, then you will be able to not only exercise a creative corner of your brain that stimulates the ability to tell stories, but it'll also make you a wiser person. And I'd like to think I'm a wise person. I'd like to think that I have at least an ounce of wisdom to my name. <laughs> you, um, in your, like, quick description you were like you were jewish artists and everything but you used a word a lot just now and i think you should add it as well you're a you're a storyteller yes whether that's through podcasting whether that's through writing shows whether that's just through having other people tell their stories you are a storyteller thank you which thank is you. awesome because even directing i mean they're the person that like after everything comes together like their vision tells what that story is yeah I think storytelling is just a natural thing. You know, my my parents are, are good storytellers. Um, and, you know, they deserve some credit for for just the, the natural way that I've come to, to tell stories. Also, I think, you know, the Jewish aspect ties into being a storyteller because Jews are, are huge storytellers. Uh, they, they, you know, we got our practice from telling stories because... Before the Torah, it was all oral tradition. And, uh, I mean, you could attest to this, being the Jewish educator you are. That's my full-time job, That's guys. That's full-time job. <laughs> uh, what is it about Jews and storytelling that, that makes us so good at it? Honestly, it's because it's what we've always had. You know, temple got destroyed. We didn't have a pra place to pray. We had to continue telling the tradition. We lost Jerusalem. We had to put it in everything and tell everybody. You know, during the Holocaust, we weren't allowed to read from the Torah. We weren't allowed to do anything. All we had was us and our identity. And yeah, it divided a lot of people, but like that's what kept us going for an incredibly long amount of time. We're still here. A lot of people have tried to change that. Yeah. Um, Isn't but, that remarkable? <laughs> but, but we're on the topic of Judaism and the fact that you identified in your short description as Jewish, like one means that Jewish identity is big for you, but also means that like there's other stories behind that. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about like how your Jewish identity has not only shaped your film career, but has shaped you as a person today? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think I was always proud to be Jewish. Uh, I went to synagogue growing up. You know, there was a point where like every Friday... I'd go to Shabbat services, and then I would scuff my face with challah. 
and the brownies and you know there's a lot of sweets that our synagogue would, would give out and i pretty sure i got most of my uh, uh fatness from that i'm, I'm <laughs> for the record for anyone who hasn't met me i'm i, I don't i don't think i'm fat but like I'm, I'm very comfortable with my my body image but like i i just i was a really unhealthy kid <laughs> I, I will say that and i was not afraid to stuff my face with challah and you know <laughs> you know that pride came with me to school and that wasn't always welcomed and and actually the first bit of anti-semitism i faced was in middle school um in middle school um in sixth and seventh grade i went to uh, los cerritos middle school and uh, at Los Cerritos, uh, I, I did face a lot of anti-Semitism. And Nick, Nick can attest to this because that, that's where I met Nick. And he and I, you know, we got into fights uh, together, you know, on the same team this time. Uh, I one time chucked a trash can at a kid for calling me a stupid Jew. Um, that's not even a creative insult. It's not even creative. But then they, you know, I, there were more creative things. You know, someone did call me a kike. Someone did flick a penny at me. You know, someone did, uh, you know, th- there have been some pretty terrible things that while they were designed to further me for my ability to appreciate where I came from, it made me closer to my Judaism. Mm-hmm. And um, after seventh grade, I actually switched middle schools to uh, uh, Redwood Middle School. And at Redwood Middle School, I actually, uh, while there was less anti-Semitism that I faced, uh one of the worst days of my life occurred. Uh, the worst day of my life was that I, when I became victim of a hate crime. Uh, they had tore my locker open. And inside the locker, they spray painted a swastika. And on the floor in front of the uh, locker, it, there was a phrase that said, you don't fuck with the Ravens. On one side, a swastika. On the other side, a neo-swastika. And I remember uh, it was early one morning. I came to school. Didn't see the people who had, uh, you know, destroyed my locker, but um, I saw it, and I remember I, I didn't cry, I just felt numb, and I felt very uneasy, and I had to report it, and that whole entire day kind of went by in a blur, like, like it didn't happen. And I remember I just came home, and that's when I broke down. And uh, I, I don't think I've ever cried that hard in my life. Uh, that, was, that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. Um, little, little side note about the resolution of that. Uh, we did find, the, the, the police did find uh, the perpetrators who had committed it. And uh, one guy's name, uh, I will not say his name because he doesn't deserve any sort of recognition. But he was a guy who had connections to an attempt at a white supremacy group called the Ravens in Thousand Oaks. And uh, he didn't achieve in making it into the gang, but this was his attempt in making it into the gang, was to uh, hit a locker that was actually the leader of the group's ex-girlfriend, which was apparently next to mine. And I didn't know that. Um, But... They missed her locker and hit my locker. Someone who had experienced anti-Semitism. I don't know if the other girl who was intended to be hit had experienced anti-Semitism, but I did. And so my locker was complete, was was demolished. And that kid was taken to, uh, you know, he was put under probation for that. 
And um, what happened was uh, a week after being put on probation, he was caught selling fake cocaine on campus with baking soda, which can kill you if you do snort baking soda. And then he was put under house arrest for it. And now he lives somewhere else, but he has a criminal record. Um, the other guy, his name, who does recognize, who does deserve recognition because he is a good guy. Uh, his name is Isaac. And Isaac, uh, he weirdly enough, he's an African American, and he was brought on to this, you know, to this vandal, you know, to, to vandalize my locker, um, not knowing what they were even doing, and he did it. And I remember he told me when I met him in person. Uh, that he regretted that day. He regretted it the moment he did it. And he remembers the cops waking up, up at like two in the morning after he did that. And they arrested him. And he was in jail. He was detained for a night before they figured out what was going Before they investigated him. I, I don't know the entire process. But um, I sat down with him one day. And I, it was important for me to do this. This was like maybe 10 years later. This was actually a couple years ago. And I sat down with him, and uh, it became one of the most important conversations in my life. And I forgave him because I could tell he was a good person. He is a guy who has an interest in music. He loves video games. He works in a restaurant as a cook. And he lives with his sister. You know, he's a family guy. And he... He made a bad mistake. He made a bad decision. I had to learn to forgive in that moment. And I, I learned to forgive prior to that. But I guess what I'm saying is I needed closure. I, I needed closure that I didn't even know I needed. And that was really important for me. Sitting down with this guy who had caused one of the worst days in my life. Um, so anti-Semitism is no stranger to me. And uh, being Jewish is you know, because of these experiences has become even closer to my identity. Uh, you know, without Judaism, there is no me, essentially. That's what it comes down to. Right. And the fact that you are also able to, you know, choose that for yourself and, like, identify, because, like, there are definitely Jews that don't do that, and then there are Jews, and that's, like, their only identity, and you're like, it's part of me, yes. And I'm happy you've embraced that. Thank you. Um, it's also how we met. As you mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I've, Jewish organizations, you know, which is a pretty stereotypical thing if you're a Jewish American, is you're, <laughs> you're going to be involved with a Jewish organization at some point, or at least you're going to be approached by one, and then that somehow that Jewish organization is going to uh, help you guys find love. Because of the Jewish Federation, my parents found, found each other, you know? Right. <laughs> like, like, different factoids like that, like, like, just constantly reaffirm this stereotype that, like... Because of Jew Jewish organizations will make you fall in love, especially birthright. <laughs> oh, birthright. Oh, birthright. <laughs> like just got back from Israel. Yes, staffing you did. birthright. Yes, you did. You had a good time, didn't you? Yeah, it was great, but it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work. Good for you, man. I'm proud of you for that. Thanks, Chaz. Of course. Um, but while we're on the topic of Judaism, um, and I don't know if you want to like go more in depth on this, but I know like something happened in college that like is actually like a. It, at the time, it was not great, and then, like, after everything was over, it was, like, almost a sense of pride. Yeah. Uh, if you want to, like, talk about that. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. You know, it's funny. I, in my bedroom, I have a diploma of from San Francisco State, and I think most people look at their diploma as, you know, a sign of legitimacy to what they do or, 
you know, perhaps it's, it's a sense of pride. For me, it's like I hunted a deer and I put a taxidermy on my wall. And that's probably the most savage thing I'll ever say in my life. Um, <laughs> Good thing it's recorded and will be there forever. Oh, I want it to be heard. I want everyone to drop their jaw hearing that. Because I love the fact that this is how everything turned out. At San Francisco State, uh, there was a long history of anti-Semitism that had occurred. And, you know, there are some cases that are a lot more obvious than others, but there is such a thing as systemic racism and systemic anti-Semitism, for that matter. And that is actually really hard to identify sometimes because oftentimes this happens behind closed doors. And it's a lot easier from a, from a racist person's standpoint to hide the fact that you did something uh, to, to hinder an organization or a group's ability to function. And that, will, that was what was happening. Um, I was a part of San Francisco Hillel. And at San Francisco Hillel, um, I think that, you know, while I do have a lot of appreciation for that organization, they were so focused on the bridge building aspect of what Hillel is about that they weren't able to focus on the defense that Jewish students needed to feel comfortable. And since then, by the way, they've changed their ways and they've grown. Um, the constructive criticism that they deserve has been mended. You know, to this, to this day, there have been a series of settlement agreements that the school agreed on because for a three-year process, I was a part of a lawsuit that took place because after, 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 afterwards, I was approached by uh, an organization called the Lawfare Project. The Lawfare Project uh, helped us, uh, me and a couple of plaintiffs, they helped us, you know, defend our right as Jews, which is something that we weren't getting on the campus at the time, uh, both by the school and also both by San Francisco Hillel. Again, uh, a harsh criticism, but one that's been mended. And, um, you know, for three years I was working with the organization, and then finally, uh, 2019, in March... <laughs> The, the, the judge called for the trial to be my birthday. I didn't think I was going to have a birthday last year. And it ended up being one of the best birthdays of my life. Because what happened was uh, we got there and we were preparing for this trial and we were getting ready for it. And there are some stressful factors to preparing for it. But amazingly, what had happened was a day before the trial was actually going to happen, um, our opposition at San Francisco State... Uh, gave us a settlement agreement that we had to agree to. As in, it was so good what they were offering that we weren't going to lose, we were going to lose the opportunity otherwise. So we agreed to it. And you can look it up online. I want you, I want everyone who is actually curious about this to go onto Google and type in Volk versus the CSU Board of Trustees. When you look that up, you will see the settlement agreement. You'll see articles based on that. And that basically put the school and also the entire CSU system for that matter under a magnifying glass to ensure that uh, anti-Semitism is taken seriously on college campuses. And has it solved every issue, by the way? No. No, I'm not going to pretend that I solved the issue of anti-Semitism on college campuses. I'm not going to do that. But I will say that this was an essential step that wouldn't have taken place if people like Jake Mandel has hadn't come up to me and asked me people like Amanda Berman, people like um, the, the, the heads of the Lawfare Project, uh, you know, if, if they hadn't 
come up to me and approached me, uh, I wouldn't be here today. The day after we got the settlement agreement, it was beginning to hit me the impact that I had. Um, I don't know if you've ever had this feeling, Izzy, or anyone listening on the other end, where like you know something monumental has happened, and suddenly everything in the entire world looks different. Like, like, like someone's put a new filter above your eyes. I oftentimes get this feeling when I look around and I realize there's a new president of the country. Like, I remember the moment when it transitioned from uh, Obama to Donald Trump. I remember the world looked different to me for some reason. That was a weird feeling. It is a weird feeling. You know? Do you ever get that? Yeah. Um, you know, it's not always in a negative context. It's also just sometimes, you know, like when I first moved to L.A., and for the first time in a very long time, I was like, I have truly found a home. Right. And I got here, I'm like, wow, like the sun is shining brighter, just life seems great It's a culture shock. Yeah. It's a culture shock, essentially. Yeah. Based on context. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I also felt that, by the way, when I went from Bush to Obama. Right. You know? Uh, I felt that way. You remember Clinton to Bush? I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was too young to care about politics. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, the world seemed to have a different filter when when I when I began to settle in as to what what I did and what we did as a team, and that felt really really good. It felt really good. And um, again, just look up Volk versus CSU Board of Trustees. Uh, before the trial had begun, members of my community had warned me about my reputation being damaged because of it, and. For anyone out there who is worried about fighting anti-Semitism because of the fact that your name could be in an article, don't be. Because the Jewish community has your back. You will not be alone. Fighting anti-Semitism and making a name for yourself as someone who is fighting at this pivotal point in time in America, where anti-Semitism is at the all-time high it's ever been in America, which is quite frightening. We need people to start standing up. Yes, the bridge building between communities and religions and cultures is, is essential to peace and diplomacy. But even more so, we need people who are willing to defend what it means to be a Jew in America, an American Jew. And I, I say right a lot because, yeah, that's I completely agree. Um, and the fact that you're like part of the fight and the fact that you're encouraging others is, again, I've said this a lot on this podcast right now, but admirable. Um, but, but going off of it, um, how does like, cause you said Judaism is like a part of your identity and like you have all these stories about it. How has Judaism like influenced other than, other than it making you a storyteller, like influenced your work? Absolutely. I think that's a great question. For example, I, I mentioned earlier about failing better and a little side note, I had made a short film, uh, in, in college called to fail better. Um, I think I made it. I think it was one of those things where I, I wanted to make a movie about something I wanted to be practiced, but didn't know how to, and so I did. And it's 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 definitely cheesy, by the way, but it's it's there on on YouTube or Vimeo somewhere out there. Um, that was something I heard at uh, at a Yom Kippur service one time was to fail better. To fail better was a new concept to me, but it's a Jewish moral. There are a lot of Jewish morals out there that actually affect. Uh, our pop culture to this day. For example, um, you know, we just got past Christmas. And, um, you know, fun fact, you know, those were written by Jewish writers. And I think subliminally there are some Jewish, there is Jewish mes messaging in Christmas music. <gasps> the secret's out there. 
you know a lot of jews wrote christmas songs oh yeah. no but there is i think a jewish a jewish message in some of those songs and because of that you know in the same way in a parallel in some of the work that i've done there just happens to be jewish morals uh in there and jewish morals by the way totally um intersect with with other morals and other religions and islam and christianity and buddhism and and hinduism and whatnot um so i mean you know you could look at a work of art and realize it's kind of ambiguous that it's a jewish moral so to speak i think just subliminally it affects the way i tell stories it affects the the meaning behind certain characters and realizing that there is meaning in everything because me putting meaning in everything is something that is very very jewish if you've ever um, celebrated Passover, every item you eat has something to do with the story. There is nothing in Passover that isn't crafted without the story in mind. And that's actually a really beautiful thing from a storyteller's perspective, from a screenwriter's perspective, is that everything has symbolism. You know, that piece of matzah that you're eating, it tells a story. That lamb that you're eating, it tells a story. That little bit of uh, horseradish, it tells a story and you need to, I mean, don't eat it in that order or do depending on the prayer, but <laughs> <laughs> if only but, it tasted better, if only it tasted better, but you know what though, <laughs> I think it's actually one of the best Jewish holidays because of, because of the storytelling of it. It really is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And you know, on Passover, we read the story every single year. You read the, you read the Passover Haggadah and you read the Exodus of Egypt and you read next year in Jerusalem and you it, the whole holiday is, as you were saying, like about the tradition, about the story. Um, I remember when I was a kid, and I kind of still do this now, I had finger puppets for all the four questions and for the different plagues and everything. <laughs> so and it made would. the story come alive. That's and amazing. it was just, <laughs> it's just a very, but like, it's, it's a really fun thing. Is and that it, on video anywhere? Uh, there are pictures of it. I want to see pictures. That's so freaking cute. Okay. Wow. Um, <laughs> I love that idea. <laughs> so yeah, no, like it's really cool, um, like about Passover in general, because as you were mentioned, like it's all story based and everything. And for those of you who don't know a lot about Passover, um, you know, we tell the story about the Exodus from Egypt and we also ask four questions. Uh, and the youngest person always asks it no matter how many years they've had to do it. I had to do it for such a long time because I was always the youngest person in my family and you ask it in Hebrew, but the four questions are actually technically Aramaic, but you ask it. And the four questions are, you know, why is this night different from all other nights? Why do we eat matzah tonight instead of challah or bread or anything? Why do we dip twice when some nights we don't even dip once? And why do we recline at the table? Um, and there's answers to all of them that I'm not going to go into on the podcast because uh, this is about Chaz and not about Jewish education. <laughs> <laughs> um, but every single year, no matter what Seder you go to, you ask the questions and we provide answers either from the Gada, which is the storytelling book uh, for Passover, or, you know, just the people answer it in general, whether it's their style of it. And it happens all the time. And it's just this tradition that happens, but we make sure that we constantly tell the story. Well said. Um, and that kind of leads me into, because um, I asked earlier about, like, how does Judaism, like, influence your storytelling and everything? But how does, like, that concept of, like, making sure that, like, people know the story and, like, they won't forget anything influence how you write and how you tell stories? I think one important thing is to recognize uh, what tools you as a storyteller have in your toolkit for telling uh, a memorable story. So part of that can be just creating a captivating character in which right now uh, there's a character I'm working on right now that crosses, I, I don't want to say anything right now because it's, it's, it's gonna, it's, 
it's still in the it's still in development and I you know but there's a character I'm creating that has one foot in every single crossroad possible. Uh, I don't think I've ever created a character this complex before and I'm really I'm really really excited for uh, submitting it to different that the story to, to different uh, competitions and trade trade programs and whatnot. Um, so that's one thing, for example. That, that I'm really, really uh, looking forward to, to completing. But part of it is also, uh, you know, like one simple tool, for example, are uh, when you make a callback to something, uh, to constantly remind the audience. Um, you know, that, that could come in the form of a simple joke in which I just got done writing a screenplay about, um, like a short film, about uh, a couple, like uh, this, this couple that accidentally murders their best friend and they have to hide the body. And there's a bunch of really funny callbacks in the dialogue to what's going on. Something that was mentioned, re- something really small that wouldn't have mattered that I keep on calling back to. And there's something like that that, that makes it really funny. If you look at Jewish humor and the root of it, <laughs> if you listen to a couple of Jews tell jokes or even just Jewish humor as it is, a lot of the times it's just callbacks to jokes that have already been said, but like a different version of it or, or whatnot. And the other day, like I was actually sitting with my dad and one of his friends over the phone, and I had heard a word I had never heard before, and it's probably common knowledge to Jews who are more religious than me, but I never heard the word smicha before. <laughs> and so I asked what a smicha is, and the guy on the other end, on the, on the other end said, that's ah, about three or four pounds. And I, I was like, wait, what? And apparently this is a part of some joke that's been told over and over and over, and that's just a part of Jewish humor is, is being in a little bit being in the know, but being, but also throwing a call back to something. You know what we should do? What? Would it would actually be kind of funny? What? Uh, joke off. A joke off? Joke off of old Jewish jokes that we've heard. Right now? Right now. Oh, God. Off, off the top of our head. Cause, oh, God. Because well, yours, I, I can go first, but that, that reminded me of like the callbacks and everything. <laughs> okay, okay. So um, there's a guy who goes to a new synagogue. Okay. And he walks in, and as they're praying and everything, someone just shouts a random number. They shout, 24, and everybody cracks up. And the guy looks around, and he's like, this this makes no sense. Okay, and he keeps going. All of a sudden, someone shouts out, 78, and everybody cracks up. Um, and the guy turns to the person next to him and goes, hey, what what's going on? Why, why is this happening? And they go, oh, well, a lot of us have been members here for so long that we know jokes by number. So people just shout the numbers, and we know what the joke is. And he goes, okay, cool, let me give it a try. And he goes, 52, and nobody laughs. He's like, why did no one laugh? And the guy turns to him and goes, eh, it wasn't funny. Yeah, it's it's hysterical that you mentioned that because the other day my dad actually told me that joke explaining. So it's like, it's like here you go, two different generations of people who have heard the same Jewish joke and it's just being repeated in different ways and delivered in different ways. And it's it's just like, what? <laughs> it, that's just Jewish humor, this, this connectivity. It doesn't matter. Um this isn't a joke per se, but this is a, a Yiddish saying that that I heard. Uh, I one time, you know, you know, read it online. I never heard this in person, um, but it's you're so dumb. If we put your brain in a bird, you'd fly backwards. <laughs> you- <laughs> and and I, I, I was like, it's like that was really creative. I, I would have never thought that. <laughs> Yiddish curses are so funny. My grandma teaches Yiddish. Okay, and she's like, there's Yiddish curses like. Um, uh, hopefully you'll be like a uh, carrot head in the ground, ass in the air, uh, or a, or a, may a child be named after you and soon. Cause in the Jewish religion, you only name it after dead people. 
um you know that's a morbid it's very morbid that's a very morbid thing to say i'm gonna use that for for next time someone insults me that's jewish um (laughs) here's a joke i don't think it's necessarily a jewish one but it's it's a good joke it's it's a it's one of my favorite jokes you're telling it might be jewish okay so there are three guys there are three guys and they get into an awful car accident and all three of them die and uh all three of them ascend to heaven and when they get to heaven god you know right before the white pearly gates says to them yeah heaven's a pretty cool place there's not a single rule there's a lot of bars you can check out but there's only one rule and that is don't step on a pink cloud and the three guys are like well i've never seen a pink cloud so okay you know so they go into heaven without a worry in the world right so they keep on meeting at this one bar and um eventually what happens is one day uh two of the guys come in and one guy comes in super late and he's handcuffed to a really ugly girl and they're like what what happened to you and the guy goes oh, i stepped on a pink cloud so the next day goes by and uh one you know two guys show up one guy with the handcuffed you know girl to him and then there's still another guy late and then the guy the second guy comes in also handcuffed to an ugly girl and the last guy who remains goes oh my god you stepped on a pink cloud like, yeah i did the next day comes and the two guys who had previously stepped on a pink cloud are in the bar and they're waiting with their handcuffed ugly woman to them. And then finally he comes, the last guy comes in handcuffed to a really beautiful girl. And the guy, the guy goes, the guys go, wait, wait, what, what happened to you? She stepped on a pink cloud. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know if that, I don't think that's Jewish humor, but it's, that's just, that's, that's a very like, you know, like even if you could figure out the punchline before, and that's a very much just like ah, like yeah, a like yeah. a one liner thing, right? You know, I that just reminded me. We could do all day with this. I'll tell one more, and then you can tell one more, so that we don't make. Oh, this. I don't even know if I have one more in my arsenal. But go ahead. I want to. I want to hear what you got. This is a joke that uh, my dad told me, and okay. it's really funny. Okay. Um, and my dad's a journalist, so this is why it's even funnier. Um, so this guy, uh, dies, and he he basically is taken to purgatory, and. He's like, all right, cool. We're going to show you heaven, and we're going to show you hell, and we're going to let you decide whatever you want. Like I said, okay, that's really cool. So he goes to heaven, and it's what you think of. Like, everyone's really nice. There's angels. There's clouds. There's, like, really awesome things. He's like, okay, cool. That's awesome. That's really cool. I'm enjoying it. Let me, let me go see hell. Why not? He goes down to hell, and it's just, like, booze everywhere and giant sex parties and, like, everything that you would think is sinful but, like, badass and really cool. And so he's brought back to purgatory, and they say, okay, cool, which uh, which of these would you like? And he said, you know, for uh, with all due respect, I think I'm going to stay in hell. And the guy said, fair enough. Uh, ha- have a great time. Go enjoy. And he goes down to hell, and it's everything you think hell would be. It's fire, brimstone, torture. And he goes to the guy at the door, and he's like, hey, hey, wh- what's going on? Yesterday I was in hell, and they had all these great things, and, and now this is horrible. And the guy goes, ah, yesterday we were campaigning. <laughs> i like that that's good. it's a good one it's a really good one i like that a lot oh man i you know i don't think i Here, here's one that i think i heard you know one of my rabbis say <laughs> you and, and think? I, I, I think i did it might have been from the rabbi or someone in our synagogue but basically there's a terrible flood and it's gotten to the point where this 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 guy is on his roof you know hoping for god to save him and he starts praying to god oh please save me oh and he has his hands 
put together. He's making, he's delivering some sort of prayer. So eventually a, a boat comes along, comes to rescue him. And he says, get on the boat quickly. You're going to, you're going to drown. And the guy says, no, 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 I can't. I'm waiting for God. He's going to rescue me. So the guy in the boat, you know, shrugs his shoulders and, you know, speedboats away. Next thing you know, uh, uh, a helicopter comes by and uh, the helicopter uh, lowers the ladder and says, you know, with a megaphone shouts, get in. And the guy says, I can't. I'm waiting for God. He's going to rescue me. So the helicopter flies away. And eventually a guy with a jetpack comes on and the guy with the jetpack has an extra harness for him to, to get in. And he says, get in, you're going to drown. And at this point, the water's up to the guy's ankles, up to the guy's knees. And it's rising quickly. And he says, I can't. I'm waiting for God to rescue me. And so finally, the guy with the jetpack shrugs his shoulders and he flies away. So eventually he dies. And uh, in doing so, he, he makes it to heaven. And he says, God, I was waiting there forever. You know, how come you didn't rescue me? And God says, well, I sent you a boat and you didn't take it. I sent you a, a, a helicopter and you didn't take it. I sent you a jetpack and you didn't take it. What do you want from me? <laughs> what else do you want? But that also, that also though, it goes into this Jewish moral that I heard from, um, from the Talmud. And the, in the Talmud, which is the, the Jewish law book, it's an interpretive book that kind of parallels off of the Torah. It's so big. It's so big. And I think it's ever growing. It's ever expanding, isn't it? It's like, it's constantly debated. If you were to study a page a day, which you can do, mm -hmm. it would take you seven years. That's so crazy to think about. Um, there's one thing in the Talmud that says, pray as if there is a God, act as if there is no God. And I think if there was something I was ever to get tattooed on me, it might be that. There's a few other things I'd get tattooed on me. The Talmud also has a lot to say whether you can get tattooed or not. Right, right, yeah. That's a whole different story. My, my, my parents and I actually have this agreement. My parents wanted to get cremated, and I never liked the idea of anyone getting cremated. So I told my parents, I really don't want to be cremated. I want to be buried with you guys. It's the only reason why I'd want to be in a Jewish cemetery, by the way, is to be next to my parents. And so um, what they said to me was, fine. Well, and they also knew I, I, I was considering getting tattoos. So they, they said to me, fine, we'll make a deal with you. Uh, we will not get cremated. It will be buried if you don't get any tattoos. And I shook my hand, my dad's hand, and suddenly I realized, oh, shit, now I can't get a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was one of those things where it was like, it was like I made this agreement. Like, yes, finally. And I'm like, oh, wait, but there's a consequence to it. And I should have thought about this. And, ah, got me again. Nah. But. <laughs> ah, no tattoos for you. No, 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 no tattoos. No, no. Unless I get, like, a tattoo they can't find like I'll, I'll get a tattoo like under my lip and they'll say fooled you <laughs> as funny as that is then you'd have to be that guy with a lip tattoo well i'd be talking like this the whole like, like three weeks i would be talking like this because my, my bottom lip would be like stuffed it would be like yeah. poofy it'd be i don't know how people get lip tattoos i don't, I don't know i don't know how much shelly would enjoy that and no no not for like the first three weeks I wonder if that would make my saliva taste differently too. Like this is like a gross thought because like, like I know that like ink like does, ink. Yeah, because the ink would actually the ink does like disappear over time. I know that people with lip tattoos actually do have to get them refined. Yeah, which is like so disgusting to me. Sorry, no offense to anyone with lip tattoos, but it just sounds like a really painful process. I cannot do that. No, I'd get a, I'd get a tattoo on like my deltoid, maybe, or like on my chest, maybe on my back, you know, but. I've made the agreement. I, my 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 deal is sealed. I, I can't do anything. What am I to do? Would you get a tramp stamp? Yes. 
What if what if you got like a tramp stamp and then put quotation marks around the tramp stamp? Like, what if I got this? Wouldn't that be kind of funny? <laughs> I, I I would get a tramp stamp that would say, uh, "Jesus is coming. Look busy." No, okay. I, I took that right out of Johnny English, and I take you, that back. That's you, not <laughs> because this is a podcast. None of you can see my reactions. I like. <laughs> literally just <laughs> lost all faith every nice thing i said about jazz in this entire podcast it's I, no longer valid. i took back in that one facial expression yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay so we've been talking for a really long time now i do want to talk about one more thing because this is the last episode of the season this yes. is about you and then we're gonna you know do some announcements and we'll do some other things because everyone's dying to know the future of it um, but we've name dropped a very specific person, uh, this entire podcast. Her name is Shelly. Uh, Shelly is my roommate who is awesome. Uh, I actually set her and chat, her and Chaz. Yeah, her and Chaz. That's the correct pronouns. Her and Chaz up, uh, and now they're dating. Um, and we keep bringing her up briefly. And I know you've mentioned her and like other times and everything. Let's just talk about Shelly for a second. Oh yeah. I'm always down to talk about my wonderful, amazing girlfriend, um, yeah, she makes life better, in summary. She really does. That's really sweet. Um, but the one thing I kind of want to talk about is, is one, I want to talk about like how you guys like met mainly because it's a self-plug for me. Uh, <laughs> but two, um, I also want to talk about the fact that like, you know, like it's a part of your life now and like the fact that like you're working in the entertainment industry and you're, you know, dating somebody, which, you know, you know, people make it work, but it, it's a lot. It's something that, especially like once you become incredibly successful, it's something that's you know, it's something that exists in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's just let's just dive right in with both of those things. Yeah, well, uh, the way I met Shelly was um, through you, but more specifically, what happened was like uh, you were moving into a new apartment, and uh, one day you said, "Hey, Chaz, uh, I need help making a bed." <laughs> uh, it's a very comfy bed. Yeah, and. Uh, can you help me construct it? Because it's like one of those IKEA beds that you can that you put together. And my first thought was, just put it together yourself, you lazy asshole. But then I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll do it for him. So I get there. We work together. I, I, I get there, and the first person I meet is not Shelly, but Shelly's mom. Uh, <laughs> and Shelly's mom is actually making her way out the door in that time. And I said, oh, hi. Hi, Cindy. Nice to meet you. Um, hi, Shelly. Oh, pleasure to meet you. Okay, cool. So, um, yeah, I uh, I... I went in and um the first thing i did was I, I you know sat down on the floor and i started reading the instructions and it's really easy just a lot of use of the allen wrench and a few screws and you got yourself a bed and uh i was doing that and um talking with shelly and shelly was really cool and also josh was there my best friend josh um i have two best friends izzy and josh i'm not cheating on you izzy and i'm not cheating on you josh either it's it, just a polyamorous relationship it, it's okay um it's okay Chaz. And, and Shelly, don't worry, that one's between us. That's a monogamous relationship. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but I, um, so, so I, I put his bed together. And then I remember that day, uh, we were going among, along the Santa Monica Pier, uh, walking around, which was pretty cool. But funny enough, that day, uh, I wasn't hitting on Shelly because of a key factor. And that was because at the time I was dating someone else. And uh, I had actually initially thought that, wow, so Shelly and Izzy, I'm sorry, Shelly and Josh are getting along really well. I'm going to step aside with Izzy to wingman them. (laughs) (laughs) So initially I I tried that and I saw them getting along really well and, uh, you know, everything was cool. Meanwhile, my relationship at that time was falling apart. It it wasn't, it it wasn't good. I'm just going to say that. 
And um, what ended up happening was, um, uh, the you know, said goodbye and everything. And I very recently, very soon after that was actually uh, Izzy and Shelly's birthday. And they happened to share like the same weekend where they're celebrating their birthday. So it was like one big birthday weekend. Three days apart. Three days apart, literally. It was pretty cool, actually. So um, that weekend was actually pretty uh, monumental because... Uh, I slept over at that house that entire weekend, got to know Shelly's cat, Storm, uh, met some of Izzy and Shelly's friends. They are pretty cool. And, like, like we were playing, like, some, like, truth or dare game, and there was some hint that I found Shelly attractive. By that point, I was willing to say things like that because I had broken up with my ex, uh, my now ex, and that, that was a good thing. Shelly uh, unexpectedly came into my life and I, I guess I was a lot more emotionally ready to meet someone worthwhile. Um, and I didn't think I was, but I, I was. And next thing I knew, um, I started to like Shelly a lot and we started hitting it. We started hitting it off really well. And um, eventually I got to the point where I had to hit up Josh and I was like, Hey Josh, I just doing this for bro code here. Is this okay for me to hit on Shelly? And he goes, yeah, dude, I, I don't care. I'm like, okay, cool. Great. Thank you, dude. I really appreciate it. Uh, I had one of those moments, I, you know, so you can't break bro code, you know, you just can't do it. It's an essential rule. Otherwise, I get my man card taken away. And um, it's a really nice card. It's like gold plated and it, yeah. like, it's compensating for something. Right. It, it <laughs> definitely is. It's it's very, very big. It's a very big gold plated <laughs> man card. It has a lot of girth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you, you have stumbled upon Mr. Thread Stars of Tomorrow. Where every week we talk about a gold-plated girth card. <laughs> that's season two, guys. Season two, guys. That's the announcement we're we're prepping you for. But um, you know, uh, I you know then started to talk to Shelly more, and Shelly and I hit it off really well. And one night we were invited to a birthday party, and uh, we kissed for the first time, and that was like where the sparks flew, and um. It was really beautiful. And so since then, we, we were dating for a little bit, and then we became serious. And, um, you know, it's been about five months going on six months next month, which is really remarkable. And uh, she's played a really key role in my life. She's also a filmmaker. She's a documentary filmmaker who also has a background in audio. Probably could totally create her own podcast if she wanted to because um, she's that talented. Uh, all, she, all she, you know, I, I think when there's any thing that Shelly wants to put her mind to, all she has to do uh, is 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 do it, and, and it'll get done. She doesn't realize how much power she has just from her determination, and uh, she will be very successful one day. So successful to the point where, um, you know, at, at the beginning when I started the podcast, I actually joked with her and said that I'd bring her on, and she said she didn't want to, but only up until like maybe a month ago did she say she wanted to be on the podcast. So I've decided that that's going to be the premiere of season two. If we continue this podcast. Boom. Boom. Yeah, Shelly's, Shelly's remarkable. I love her. I love her, guys. I do. I'll broadcast it. I do love her. Um, Aw. Yeah, she's pretty amazing. I mean, she really has made me a, a really happy person. There are moments where, like, I don't deserve her. And then there are moments where, like, no, I, I do. I do. I do. And, and, and she reaffirms the fact that, uh, you know, these insecurities that I've had and, like, made me realize that, a lot of these insecurities are silly in that, uh, you know, she's she's revealed some really great things about me. She's helping me find my best self, and that's the only thing I can hope to, to help her with is, is 
help her be her best self, even though she already is her best self and she doesn't realize it. So <laughs> this podcast is now me no longer gushing about Chaz. It's Chaz gushing about Shelly and then me gushing about Shelly. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in love with her. I'm in love with her. I really am. So she just makes me happy. And she is great. Um, and I and I feel very qualified to say that because <laughs> I live with her and see her all the time. Yeah. Um, she she wishes her best for the podcast today. Aw, which is really nice. Yeah, we're, we're gonna give her a call after this podcast. We're gonna we're gonna say hi. We are. Yeah. Um, you know what? Honestly, that that was like a really good thing, like about about Shelly and everything. And you know, you guys have a very strong relationship, and I really think like unless we want to elaborate more on it there's like you know the other the other part i said like we might dive into there's really no need to do that i think we're good i i know for a fact that shelly is blushing on the other end and that's a good thing i want you to blush that was actually the goal that was the goal that was the goal what i said it, it you know i guess i feel that way um, <laughs> it was just all to make you blush sorry babe <laughs> all right everybody <laughs> so we're reaching the end of the podcast. Ooh. At least and the end of season one. I didn't get nervous until just now. And so that means we got to do two things. Yes. We got to do the announcements you want to make. Yes. And then I get to ask you the question that you ask everybody else on your podcast, mm-hmm. which I'm not going to do yet because first it's announcement time. Yes, sir. Um, announcements. Uh, this is the finale of season one. It's been a really, really amazing season. I've learned a lot about myself. I've learned a lot about um, some skills that I didn't think I would ever have, and and I do have. I've gotten comfortable with hearing my voice uh, broadcasted and whatnot. And on top of that, I've learned a lot about marketing and social media and, and just how to get yourself out there in a more constructive way that engages listeners. Have I mastered it? Absolutely not. <laughs> but... I'm learning and I've developed an audience, which is so cool. My Thrivers and my Thrivers are really amazing people. Um, Izzy being one of them. Uh, it's remarkable, you know. Uh, in terms of announcements, there's nothing concrete to announce, which is kind of funny. But I will say that I'm at a crossroads right now. Something's happening. Something's brewing. You may begin to feel the ground shake a little bit. No, that is not your California earthquake. That is just time changing and January is one of those times where I, I I have to kind of hold my breath a little bit um I wish I had something concrete to say like the next season will begin at this date I don't have a I don't have a clear confirmation of that what I will say is that there was a potential job that I could get in within the next week if that does happen uh, I will not be continuing the podcast. However, on the chance that I don't get the pod, I don't get the job. Uh, I will continue this podcast, uh, and in doing so, do it in an environment that, uh, while my day job, you know, in 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 a time where my day job is is a lot more positive. I'm gonna say it that way. I'm speaking very broadly here, and I think you guys will understand the next couple of weeks why I'm speaking broadly, but. Um, there's been some really, uh, you know, some really, some, some avenues have, have revealed themselves to me and I'm, I'm going to explore them a little bit in these next couple of weeks and make a decision accordingly. Um, 
I, I'm pretty excited for it. I, I, I really am. It, it's just this month is absolutely essential. January 2020, things are happening. So I'm feeling good. And that's good to hear. And we're all happy to hear it. Thank you. And so with that. Nope. No? No, no, no. I haven't told anyone about how to contact me if you want to collaborate or work with me. I was going to do that after the question. No, no, no. You do that before the question. Oh, well, look at the host telling me how to host because that's his job. Let me tell you how to run Fine. my goddamn podcast. How, how can people here reach Mr. Thrive, Charlie Chaz Volk? I have if worked they on this to. goddamn podcast for under a, under a year, and this is how you <laughs> bastardize my baby. How dare you? I'm sorry, because I was doing such a great job until I messed that up. <laughs> um, no, no, you've been Izzy. You've been a fantastic host of this podcast, and 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 if you guys want to listen to Izzy's episode, it's episode nine, as he mentioned earlier. He has a really great episode. It's also the second most listened to episode of the podcast. And uh, we're in the competition to see if I maintain the most listened to episode, which is the very first episode, or maybe even this episode, because now it's a two-parter technically. Dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. So So how can we reach you? uh, You can reach me at my email, and that is chazthrivevolk at gmail.com. That is chaz with a Z, thrive volk with a v as in victor at gmail.com you can also hit up my instagram my professional instagram is at mr thrive that is m r period thrive uh if you guys want to check out my personal life as well you guys are more than welcome to uh at mr chaz volk that is uh at m r period chaz volk and uh yeah, hit me up on LinkedIn as well. You'll find me under Charlie Volk. Uh, there's a lot of stuff to be coming. Also, eventually I'm going to create a website. I'm probably going to do that, regardless of what these crossroads come. I'm probably going to eventually create a website. Um, can't announce that yet because it doesn't exist yet, but I will. Um, yeah, please hit me up. I love to collaborate. I love to work with fellow artists and network with them at the very least. Um, that's a really important thing for me. So now that we know how to contact you, now people that can reach you any time of the year, Mr. Thrive, what will you be famous for? I've thought about this a lot. And when I began the podcast, I actually thought about the possibility of someone asking me that question in the future, to which I didn't have an answer for when I began the podcast. But I will be famous for... Creating a network of artists within Los Angeles. And I'll be famous for recognizing talent where people didn't know how to recognize talent before. I also will be famous for telling a damn good story. Chaz, thank you so much for appearing on your own podcast. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's been it's been a, a very awesome challenge, and I'm really happy to be here. I'm happy I got to interview you, and I'm looking forward to a tentative season two. Yes, sir.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.